Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. All right, well, good morning. You guys doing all right this morning? All right, all right. We kicked the AC on, so hey, that's worth being here for, you know? No? All right. All right. Anyway, uh, glad that you guys are here. If you're visiting with us, someone invited you. My name's Cody, one of the pastors here. We're just glad that you uh, decided to hang out with us. Um, so we're in the middle of this thing called uh, Summer of Somebodies. And what we do is we bring in speakers that talk about the Christian faith from different perspectives. And so uh, the first week we had a pastor who struggled with mental illness. And he talked a bit about that. And he wrote a children's book, which was great. And last week we had um, one of the greatest minds of our time, J.P. Moreland. Did you guys like J.? I love J.P. He is just, man, what's funny about JP is he's going to come up here and he's going to talk about whatever he wants for as long as he wants, and he kind of has just, you know, earned the right to do that. So that, that was fun. And then um, next week, we have a former gang member who um, found Jesus in prison, and he's going to come talk about his experience there. Very, very cool, powerful story. Um, but today, we have the privilege of having Chad Williams, who um, has been, he's been here, what, we said nine years ago? 2014. What a memory. He said, you said I look better now than I did then. Is that what you said? You didn't say that. Okay. I can tell you're thinking it though. Um, and he also spoke at some of our, our men's events and we just, we just loved having him. So we invited him back. So will you please help welcome Chad? Yeah, I remember 2014 because that was the summer of nobodies, but it's good to be back for the summer of somebodies. All right. Weak joke. All right. Hey, if you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is the passage that I'll be reading from in just a moment here. And as you guys turn there, to kind of familiarize you a little bit uh, with what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams on the last deployment uh, that I was involved in. We're out in Iraq, and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs, and while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so the best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. Well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good. We've bagged and gagged some bad dudes, making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time to maybe do one more operation before we got to take off. We weren't sure if the ice offers were ready for us to be passing that baton of responsibility off to them. So we decided for this final operation, we'll just make it a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they're starting from scratch, hitting the streets. They wind up getting intel on a guy that's an Iraqi policeman by day, wears that uniform, but at night back home he's a bomb maker. And so as they're presenting this plan to us, how they want to get in, grab this guy, extract, it all checks out, looks pretty good. They also presented one other thing. They felt they got shot at more than we SEALs did. They think it, they figured out why. What is it? They say, it's the color of your uniforms. We're like, oh, really? The color of our uniforms? Not the way we shoot, move, and communicate. Nothing to do with our tactics. You think it comes down to the mere color of a uniform. You could see it on these guys' faces. They're just convinced. And so here comes this strange request. They say, would you be willing for this final operation to maybe take off your American colored uniforms? And we got a pile of ice off uniforms for you that you could put on. So like, all right, 
let's get this straight. You want us to put on your uniforms in hopes that we blend in with you, in hopes that we get shot at more with you? And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine. It's not even about the uniform. So we get their uniforms on. And I think Pili needs to say, you know, my dark complexion, start growing my little facial hair, then get on an Iraqi Special Operation Force uniform. I'm walking around on base, and I got my teammates looking at me funny now. I'm like, what's up? They're like, hey, Williams, you're starting to blend in with these guys around here. I kind of am. I'm embracing that moment, standing up in the Humvee behind the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got my night vision goggles on, so I'm looking through this green little world, going over the mental inventory, thinking about how I know how this night is going to go. I know my weapon is ready to go. I know how we're getting in, how we're going to grab him, how we're going to extract. But one unique thing I know about this operation that just makes it flat out different than every other operation, I know this is it. This is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'm going to be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, California, and I'm thinking of just surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night, was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown in what I could say is the absolute worst circumstances we'd been in on this entire deployment as we find ourselves set up on an ambush. And suddenly now we're engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, do what we do best in the teams, that led to, I think, the obvious conclusion, I'm standing alive still before you this morning, but it is worth remembering it doesn't always work out that way. We need to recall that our freedoms are not free. They're paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. That's our earthly freedom and our eternal freedom in a very similar way. Not free, paid for in what? You could say the currency of the Savior's blood at the cross. And so perhaps more on how that ambush played out if time allows... I want to share with you this little road to becoming a, a seal and most importantly, getting into God's word. So 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to read a quick story about a soldier by the name of Naaman. And I think you'll quickly see that this guy could have been a Navy seal had there been such a thing during his time. 2 Kings chapter 5, I'm reading from the New King James. Verse 1 says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids. And they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, If only my master with the prophet was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus is the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then the king of Syria says, go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Quick translation, he's bringing along the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and he's got some apparel. Jump ahead to verse 9. Verse 9, we find Naaman on his way. Keep in mind, he is going to enemy-occupied territory. It is not a short trip, 150 miles with horses and chariots. Verse 9, then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. 
And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. Stand, call the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Bana, the far part of the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Relevance of this passage coming up shortly. Uh, but like I said, a little bit of this road to becoming a seal. Uh, for me, it started really fresh out of high school, attending a local community college. And at that time, I was not doing well, failing all my classes. The saying is very true. You aim at nothing, you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was the aim. And so I'm pulling into this parking lot, failing out, really just because I'm ditching, I'm partying, I'm surfing all the time. Now it's time to take finals. Well, I didn't prepare for this. It took that moment to just hit me in the face, this realization of, man, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be. So I'm thinking, how do I turn this around? So I'm sitting there in my truck about to go to class, and I think, oh, I've got the perfect plan. I know what to do. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. Yeah. I'm thinking deadliest catch by far, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. There's some bragging rights. And then this other idea floated into my mind. Wait, no, why can't I go join the military? Not just that. I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. So I'm sitting in my truck in the school parking lot, about to go take finals I didn't study for. That's where I make up my mind. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so my first order of business is this. If I'm going to be a frogman, I don't need to go to school anymore. I started the truck up and took off out of that school parking lot. I start preparing right away. I'm hitting push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups at a local schoolyard outside the house. But then I got to let my dad know some bad news and good news as I present it to him. So he had no idea what was going on that year at school. I break the bad news. Of course, he's kind of face-palming like, ah. Oh. He's like, what's the good news? <laughs> I'm waiting for that. It's all right, Dad. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so you could put yourself in his shoes. You know, here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to even make it to the local community college level. And now he's informing you, it's okay, though. I'm going to go be a SEAL. And so he's just trying to be that voice of reason. He's letting me know that this isn't one of those things that when you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military, maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit. And don't make it through SEAL training. Just to be clear, you will still be in the military. And you're probably going to pick up a job like chipping paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. If you can't tell, those words kind of stuck with me. <laughs> but for whatever reason, that was probably one of the most motivational things I could have received at that time. Because I'm just bolting down on it even more. I want this. And so as days are going by, I'm preparing. He invites me in his room. Says, you want to do this? Yeah, Dad, I want to do this. He goes, great, well, I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'm thinking, my dad doesn't know any Navy SEALs. Like, who did he meet on the internet here? And all it says in this email is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? I'm like, play? Dad, you met some guy off the internet who says he wants to play with me, and you want me to meet him in a beach parking lot. 
He goes, no, he's a seal, son. I'm like trying to tell him about catfish and like you can't believe everything someone tells you. He's like, no, he's a seal. I'm like, all right, if you really want me to, I'll go meet up with this stranger. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation that took place on a phone call prior to that email that I didn't know about. And I didn't even find out about this until months later. And so the phone call went something like this. He says, hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, but here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do, what I just I need you to do is I need you to just crush him. <laughs> Bury him. Beat this desire of becoming a SEAL out of him if you could. I thought about it for a while. Hence the response. That's what can Chad come out and play tomorrow meant. So I'm meeting up with this guy in the parking lot, and he does look the part. He's spotting me. You, Chad? Oh, my God. Uh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba, get on over here. He looks like something Michelangelo carved out. Like maybe this guy is a seal. He winds up sending me off on a run out into the wetlands where he says he's going to catch up with me. And so 15 minutes into the run, he should be there. I am out there now, down this dirt trail, out in the wetlands, middle of nowhere, not seeing him. And this idea starts entering my mind as I don't see this guy. Like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe... Maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up. I'm celebrating, looking back, and it's like a scene at a Terminator 2. Remember that guy that could, like, morph into knife hands and chase down the moving vehicle? That's this Navy SEAL coming down this trail like a T-1000, right? He's like a canine lad in the back of a squad car. Just closes right in on me, and I never saw it was coming next. That's when the physical assault begins. I am greeted by his fist impaling my stomach, sending me for a ride. Feet coming off the ground, and I just remember seeing blue sky, feeling the wind knocked out of me, back not even on the ground yet, hitting that ground, poofing dirt up all around me, and like a wild animal, this guy's jumping on top of me, and I mean just ragdolling me. I still have the sound in my head of just the threads of my shirt ripping, feeling spit fly out as he's screaming in my face, raining down, and put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. The only intel I'm operating on is some guy my dad met off the internet. I'm thinking child predator, he's got me. And so I'm just trying to survive. But then these words come through that change everything. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. I don't know why, but something clicked. I realized this is it and this is for real. And Chad, if you quit now, you'll forever be a quitter. The way you respond here is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of your life. And so he gets up, says it again, three paces, turns, and just takes off. No mercy. What took place after that, I could say, was by far the most difficult singular workout. I'm talking even having gone through SEAL training. I have never suffered so much in a workout, I should call it a beatdown session, than this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. But we finally get to a point miles down where it ends. And he's pacing back and forth. Looks like he wants to fight me. And I'm thinking, like, no direct eye contact. Just use your peripherals. Don't look him in the eyes. And he breaks this awkward tension by pointing at me for a second time that day. Says, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? Told him what came from the heart. I said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. He goes, great. You want to meet up again for the workout tomorrow? I'm thinking, like, are we going to address the flashback this guy had on the trail? Like... Then I thought, don't bring that up. You might trigger that again. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, sure. Well, as it turns out, he hopped on the phone after all that, told my pops, like, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start working with him. So from that point forward, I began to meet with this seal. 
And thankfully, it's no longer a beat down. It became more of a, a building up. And I moved on in life, eventually, from being Bubba to suddenly one day, I become Junior. And he's like really taking me under his wing. And I can say Scott's an extraordinary Navy SEAL because he's an extraordinary Navy SEAL with a lot of records. Youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. Completed the program at 17 years old. World champion panathlete, the fastest Navy SEAL on the SEAL training obstacle course. And here's one for you, the only man, you can go YouTube this one, at the time to beat the beast on Man vs. Beast. He raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course and pulled ahead of the monkey on monkey bars. He beat the thing. Nobody did it before. And so you can imagine what it's like to get trained by this phenomenal athlete. And so he got me ready, and our training was coming to an end because I signed up. And he takes an opportunity after I sign up to go overseas one last time. And so his turnaround is going to be about as quick as the turnaround is for me to go to boot camp. He's leaving before I leave, though. So he's on the phone telling me, all right, Junior, about to go do this thing, referring to going off to Iraq. And he says, I want you to know something, though, that I have never told anybody I've ever trained before. I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And to this day, I'll never have the words to describe just what kind of an impact, what that meant to me, other than I could not wait to prove him right, make him proud, and to like stop being some loser dropout in a junior college parking lot, go do something with my life. And so he's reminding me of the timeline, how it's all going to go. He's going to be back in time. He says, I'm going to be back. I'm going to see you make it through. So we get off the phone, say our goodbyes. Next time I see Scott... There's a big picture of him smiling on TV just days later. I'm like, what is he doing on TV? Again? I, I'm looking at the smiling picture of him, just trying to figure it out. And then I see at the lower third of the screen, below his smiling picture, Scott's birth date followed by a dash. And it says March 31st, 2004. And before I could process in my mind the obvious meaning of that, it just wasn't translating. It switches from the smiling picture of him so now I'm looking at graphic video footage of a vehicle that's engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, which turned out to be the very vehicle that he was in, along with three other Americans, as this group of insurgents had ambushed the vehicle and videotaped. And now the media is playing some of the things they documented, as I see Scott and these others being pulled out of the vehicle lifeless, and this angry mob with sticks and rods now circling their bodies and trying to mutilate them with these sticks and rods and wrapping rope around their legs and dragging them through the streets. And to them, the people doing this, you could see it's a celebration. They have glee all over their faces like they're at the parade. They get to the Euphrates River Bridge and string these men upside down. And then they set their bodies on fire. And then they look into a camera and they chant repeatedly a message they wanted all Americans to hear. And all I could say is at that time, I heard it. Loud and clear, as they chanted, Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. Needs to say, I don't have the words to describe what that moment and all the surrounding moments were like. You go through the full spectrum of how you deal with grief. But one of the things I landed on was a sense of hatred I'd never tasted before and revenge. I wanted to get through that TV screen and get after those guys. And so in the SEAL teams, part of our SEAL creed, the beginning of it, is that we are forged by adversity. Adversity is that thing in life that will either cause you to utterly fail, get knocked down by it, never get back up, or you be determined to be forged by it. I guess you could say that forging process began in my mind when I remembered Scott's words to me on the phone. Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. It became all the much more important to do this in honor and memory of him, to walk in his footsteps. And again, I wanted some revenge. 
So I had his name on the inside bill of my hat as I went through training. And my thought process was this. As you're suffering in SEAL training, you have to take me out of here in a body bag before I ever quit on that name. It's not happening. And so out of a class of 173 guys, by graduation day, there's only 13 of those faces still standing there. And that graduation day, that's a big moment. It's by far one of the happiest moments, most fulfilling moments of my life. I mean, no longer this loser in the junior college dropout parking lot. No, I'm, a, I'm getting the insignia pinned into my chest, the trident. I'm a SEAL. This is my new identity. I'm getting placed on SEAL Team 1. I remember looking up thinking, Scott, we did this. I got family, friends there. One of the highest highs I've ever experienced. And I thought, from here on out, it's elevation. It's altitude. It's, it's the up and up. Here's the crazy thing. It didn't take more than 24 hours. Before I felt the wind come out of that sail, and everything seemed to slowly just tip over, go downhill, circling a drain from that point forward, I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time. Because I just achieved the ultimate. I thought I was going to be set from here on out. And it was years later I heard a Christian philosopher hit the nail on the head. Here's his words. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. You could say, one of the loneliest moments a man or woman will ever experience is when you have achieved that which you thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets you down. What I'm referring to is I think everybody in this room is familiar with, at least to some degree. Sometimes it's talked about as the human condition. Sometimes we refer to it as the grass is always greener, you know, on the other side. Not quite satisfied, not quite fulfilled with where you're at. Well, what do you want, man? I don't know, I just want a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief that if I just had a little bit more, it could be a material thing. It could be a relationship thing. Oh, what I'm missing in my life is I need more authority. I need to make more money. Oh, I got relationship goals. I just need a significant other in my life. And so you keep moving the bar. You get there. Oh, we just need a bigger home. We need some kids. We need some kids running around the house. You keep putting these things in this place that occupies really the most important place in your heart, in your mind. It takes the throne. And what happens is, is you get there, but it never lives up to it. Yeah, you're satisfied, you hit your goal, you feel filled up for a little bit, but you get hungry, you get thirsty all over again. And it's like this vicious cycle. And so what do we do? Well, we don't panic each time we hit our mark. We just kind of go back in our mind, like, why didn't this deliver the way I thought it would? And we think that we figured it out. Light bulb goes off. I didn't go for something big enough. And so we keep raising the bar. We keep aiming a little bit higher, truck up the mountain more. But it's the same thing over and over. But here's the thing is what happens when you finally get to a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, well, I know what to do. I'll just raise the bar. No, you can't do that this time. Why not? You're at the last rung of the ladder. You can't say, well, maybe I just need to climb higher, gain more elevation. No, you can't do that this time. Why not? You're at the peak of the mountain. And yet, like all the other times before, you're hungry, you're thirsty for more. But unlike all the other times, this time there is no next to turn to. That's where you get those words. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. In the end, it lets him down. You see this in the lives of so many that have gained their version of the whole world. Look at the professional athletes, the rock stars, the movie stars. Getting to be that guy to go to parts unknown. Anthony Bourdain, travel the world, see different cultures, eat food, get paid lots of money to do it. 
yeah, the guy's secretly so miserable underneath it all, and we don't know. He's taking his own life. And we go, why? Why, man? Don't you know what you have? Don't you know what people would trade to be in your shoes? But maybe that's just it. Having all the world has to offer isn't really all that is cracked up to be. There are people that don't even know the Lord, but they know that much. Jim Carrey, to paraphrase him, he says, man, I wish that everybody could just become rich and famous and have everything they ever wanted so that they would know it's not the answer. And C.S. Lewis, he says, if I find within myself desires in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I am meant for another world. Jesus puts it best, though. He says, what's it profit of man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? That is the issue. It's a soul issue, trying to resolve it with all these worldly achievements and material things. It'll never work out. And so looking back, I gained my version of the whole world becoming a seal, but at that time, my soul was not oriented correctly with the creator. And so here it is, flat out. If you have no peace with your creator, you'll never experience any true peace while you're here on earth. And so I get put on seal team one, and I'm trying to live the front, right? Family, friends, you did it. You became a seal. Oh, yeah, woo, yeah, living a dream, rock star. That's all facade. What was the truth? Secretly, I was more miserable than I'd ever been. I'm thinking if anything to look forward to is, yeah, getting a little get back overseas. And that's not a good fuel to be living off of right there. But it was through that process while I was on SEAL Team 1, I was confronted with a message in 2 Kings chapter 5 preached by Greg Laurie uh, where he shares this story of Naaman. And it really impacted me on March 14, 2007. And with the little bit of time I have left, let me give you a breakdown of the text. If you remember Naaman here, he's this commander. He has had great success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him. This status that he has, the mighty man of valor, where's it getting him? It's getting him into the VIP meet and greets. Even the king wants to rub shoulders with Naaman. He's this mighty man of valor. Yeah, he's got it going on. But what? If you remember, he had leprosy. Well, how bad is leprosy? Let's say it's a little worse than a case of eczema, all right? Leprosy, during his time, Jesus put it this way. He said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. And so now circle back and picture Naaman's life like this, if you would. So much for all that success. So much for this outward man. It's all a facade because what's really going on underneath that armor that we don't see, Naaman? What's really going on underneath the clothing that doesn't quite meet the eye? Well, what's really going on is he's literally deteriorating, falling apart. Naaman is a dead man walking. Well, quickly, I relate with that man right there because I wear the armor being a seal, but underneath it all. And in a room this size, by the law of averages, no doubt about it, many of you can relate with that person as well. Because when you think about it, who are you really? Oh, yeah, you're one person in front of the coworkers, the family members, the friends. Who are you really underneath it all? Many of you feel as though you are that dead man, dead woman, walking. I'm listening. No doubt about it, Naaman has tried everything he could try to fix himself. He can't fix himself. It's the impossible. Unsung hero in the story, little girl. She has the boldness to speak up. She's the evangelist. She says, oh, if only my master with the prophet, who was in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman being desperate, 
hearing about this experimental treatment as far as he concerned, willing to empty out the nest egg, I'll empty out my savings account, whatever it takes to give me my life again. He's bringing the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars. He gets there, guy doesn't come to the door. Sends a servant to the door. Relays a simple message. Go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. When you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. Naaman's response, yippee, let's go. No. He became, you like that one, huh? He became furious. He could probably just about have that guy's head right now. Because his expectation was that he was going to come out of his place. He said that. I expected it, that he was going to come out of his place. He thought he's going to put on a show, some special effects, right? That he's going to be waving his hand over the place, call him the name of the Lord is God, and wipe the leprosy away. But instead, he gets treated like this normal. And it infuriates him. And the Bible says he turns and begins to go away in a rage, venting out loud what his expectation was. And if Naaman continues off in that direction, where does it lead? Remember, it's terminal. He dies. And the problem is much deeper than the leprosy. If you haven't caught it yet, what is Naaman's real problem? We see it now, his pride. He won't go do this simple thing. And that is our problem as well. Virtually every sin that you and I ever commit is impregnated with some sense of pride, entitlement. And so leaving in this rage, thankfully he's surrounded by some men that care about him. And they're just doing what they can. And God's going to use it. They say, come on, Naaman, look, you know if this guy came out and gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. I mean, could you imagine if he did really put on a show, roll out the red carpet for Naaman? Oh, Naaman, the mighty man of valor, your reputation precedes you. Have we got something only a man of valor like you can do? It's going to take strength and might. It's a rite of passage. But if you complete this, start off, kick your shoes off. We've got some broken glass. You're going to run it. If you complete this, you're going to be fixed of your leprosy. It all comes together with a CrossFit exercise at the time. You finish the wad in time, you'll be fixed of your leprosy. Naaman would have been like, what? Show me where to start. Let's go. But instead, he gets told to do this simple thing. To him, it seems like a foolish thing. Don't miss that. That's what it says about the preaching of the cross. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Well, no doubt about it, Naaman is in a state of perishing here. But like I said, something these guys say, God uses. It gets through. And I think that Naaman really gets it now. There's a whole lot more going on than a mere physical change of direction as he changes up here. There is something going on spiritual. He understands, you know what? It's not the water that's going to fix me. Because yes, indeed, he does have cleaner waters where he's from in Damascus. I think he gets it. It's God of Israel. The God of Israel is going to cleanse me. If I am faithful, if I put my trust in him, he will be faithful and he will do the truly hard part. He's going to do the heavy lifting. And so Naaman, making that 180, making that walk is the walk he really needed to do all along. And in a sense, at some point, all of us need to do all along. You want life? You got to die to self first. You want to live? You got to make that walk to your own funeral before that happens. And an act of faith and trust, believing, dipping seven times comes up. Seventh time, number of completion in the Bible. What does it say? Here's the picture in the little Hebrew. He had brand new skin like that of a baby. Try and picture the mess of leprosy. Let me try and put something in your mind. He's all spotted and blotted and blemished, struck through with it. Parts are falling off. And he comes up a seventh time 
It's not like a process. It was that seventh time, brand new skin like that of a baby. I remember being on the edge of my seat pretty inspired. But I want to make a point that the curtains don't roll right there. The credits don't come out. That just as God provided a salvation for Naaman, Jesus says, if you knew about the scriptures, you would know that they testify of me. Jesus is all over this. And these things that were written of old, the Bible says, were written for us, for our learning, for our understanding. They testify to the truth of Christ. And so it gets very personal. There wasn't just hope for Naaman. We have hope in this message. And here's how it all comes out. If you recall Naaman, this mighty man of God. Remember, who are you? What kind of armor are you wearing? What kind of person are you on the outside? Naaman has leprosy, though. Yeah, what kind of issues do you got going on underneath it all? If you haven't caught it yet, you and I, apart from God, are all spiritual lepers. We are all spotted and blotted and blemished in sin. And all we do is add to it. And is there anyone in here that on their own can rid themselves of their own sin? No. So just like Naaman couldn't fix himself of his own leprosy, there's nothing he could do to get it off. None of us can do anything to get sin off of ourselves. But God provided a salvation for Naaman. What's our salvation? We got to go find the Jordan River. Got to go dip him. No. God, you could say, dipped his son down into the world on a holy rescue mission. That's Jesus of Nazareth. And what kind of life did he live? Well, he lived one unlike ours. While we are spotted and blotted and blemished in sin, we are unholy, we are unrighteous. He lived the most holy, perfect, righteous life that you and I have not lived. And so while we're a mess, he's unspotted, unblotted, unblemished. And then he goes to the cross with divine purpose. And what was the purpose? It's explained explicitly in the beginning of the gospel. To save his people from their sin. This sin that we cannot get off of ourselves. This sin that has separated us from our creator as the Bible sin. This sin like that leprosy that leads to death. The wages of sin is death. It is nasty. But God sent a savior on a rescue mission into the world to do what? Here's the picture that I hope sticks. Trade skin with you and I. To take our leprosy, our sin as it were all upon himself so that we could be switched and lavished with God's grace and mercy so that he looks at us as though we lived the perfect, holy, righteous life that Christ lived. It's a big substitutionary atonement. Pays for our sin in full at the cross and then as he's buried, he rises again from the grave. And what does that do? Number one, it vindicates him. He truly was who he claimed to be, the son of God. And it validates his teaching. Teachings like what? Take it up with him if you don't agree with it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Has anyone else died? Can they die for your sins in your place? Is anyone else even offering? He's the only one. And he says from that resurrected life, because I live, you also shall live. In other words, you too can overcome the grave. This life on earth is just act one. There is overcoming the grave. That though a man shall die, he shall live. This is not the Garden of Eden. This is not what God intended in that sense. But there is a paradise afterwards. You could say in a sense, this is just the proving ground. Which do you love more? C.S. Lewis says, there's two forms of love in this world. Does your love for sin outweigh your love for God? And you say, I choose this over you. He'll grant you your wish. He's not going to force you. 
Where do you finally come to a point where you're wooed, you're moved by the love he first demonstrated coming on a rescue mission? You say, my love for that, my love for him, outweighs my love for this sin. I'm ready to disassociate, to turn from it, to repent. For those that do, the reward is great. Remember, Naaman needed to deny self. Interestingly, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you want that life? What does it start with? The Bible says they must deny self. Sometimes it gets referred to as repent, a word we don't use on the street. This is the only place that word even comes out. So what does it really mean? It means not just sorry I got caught. It's I'm so sorry, I want to change. The Bible talks about it as it's godly sorrow that produces repentance unto salvation. And so you're just flinging yourself upon the mercy of God, much like Naaman, just putting his faith and trust in the God of Israel. That's our part. Fling yourself upon his mercy. Say sorry for your sins. And then you're trusting him to do what? To do what he says he'll do. The hard part. He does the heavy lifting. We call him a savior because he saves you from your sin. The moment any man or woman does that, it's not my word on it. It's God's word on it. He says to remember your sin no more. And remove it as far away as the east is from the west. It's a transaction that takes place like that. You're acquitted. That's it. There's no probationary period. There's no like, okay, well, we're going to on-ramp you eventually here. No, just like Naaman's leprosy was wiped out and gone, the New Testament says, repent and be changed that your sins may be what? Blotted out. That time's refreshing may come. March 14, 2007, as an active duty seal, I heard this message and I apprehended this is truth and I responded the way Naaman responded in a sense. I repented of my sin and I flung my faith and trust upon the mercy, upon the Savior, upon the risen Lord Jesus. And I experienced what the scriptures say. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And so I'm forgiven of my sin. I have a place in eternity in heaven. And in the meanwhile, while I'm here on earth, I got a lane to be in. I got things to do. And I can enjoy being a seal now in a way I didn't enjoy it before. How so? Because now it's a secondary thing in life. It's not the main thing. When I made being a seal God of my life, it could never live up to that. And nothing can. Don't put that burden on your spouse or on your kids. Make them your everything, your all. That's nice. But they can't live up to that. Only God can live up to that preeminent, most important position. But then when God is in the thorn of your heart and mind, everything else takes its proper category. To live as Christ, to die as game. Then I could go back to being a seal and enjoy it in a way I didn't enjoy it before. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so you could be a stay-at-home mom, construction world guy, corporate guy for yourself. You could say, it's a me, me, me. And that's like decaf. It just has no power. It does not work, right? You could flip it around and say, not for me, but for thee. I'm going to do it in the name of. So I was a seal for Christ. Fast forward to that final op. I wish I had time to hit the details. Let me just cut to the chase on something, though. While it worked out, we came home alive. It doesn't always work out that way. I want to honor a local Navy SEAL from here, Michael Mansour, who when he's in a place in Ramadi, out in Iraq, he's providing protection for other SEALs that were out on the road. Some of you might know him or the family. He's providing protection for other seals that are out there on the road. When from some unknown location, a hand grenade got thrown on the roof, and it bounced off his chest and into the dark. If you can imagine, he could have saved himself. There was an exit. They worked it out. 
They mapped it out. He had an exit right there. But there were other seals on the roof that had no time to get up, make it past the screen. So what's he do? Yells grenades so they could take some form of cover. As he has just enough time to not save himself, he throws himself over the grenade to cover it, and it went off. And he absorbed the shrapnel, this metal, and he died. But because of what he did, every single one of these other seals on the roof, they all lived. And so you can mark these words down in history as very true. Greater love has no one than this, one that lays down his life for his friends. And in that, I see such a reflection of what Jesus did at the cross. It helps me to understand the cross. That as Mikey covered that grenade so others could live, Jesus at the cross, he absorbed the blast. He covered the wrath, not of a grenade, but our sin, all on himself. Why? So that we could pass by, as it were, and live forever with him in eternity. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, he was there, though, for freedom's sake. Never thought about it. Jesus was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From the cross at Calvary. Why? So we could be set free from the bondage, the chains of our own sin. Greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see it in men like Mike Monsoor, Scott Helvenston, and the greatest of all, look to the cross. That's the proper perspective of that King of Kings, that Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for he, speaking of the Father made him Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, right? To become sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. Why a word like might in the Bible right there? Because not everybody will. Here's the thing. It's not just some built-into-life default position that we're all going there. You're not a Christian because you were born in America. You're not a Christian just because that's the banner that your family holds up. It's not the team you're rooting for just because you're from that area. Everybody in here has to have already or at some point come to the point where we can call this morning the naming point. Have you committed your life to Christ? And so God has made provision for you. He has made a way. He has sent his son. He paid the penalty in full. It's a free gift offered to you. It says by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift, not of works. You don't have to work for it. Every other false system of belief will have you working so hard. It's do, 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 and you never really know. Christianity, the truth is this, done. Jesus did all the work at the cross. But we need to humble ourselves and put our faith and trust. So he says, you know what? If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. He says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. And so God never even owed it to us to send a savior, but he did that much. What more could we be asking for, right? And so there's two types in the end, those that bow their knee before God and say, God, thy will be done. And the other that just utterly refuses to bow their knee and God says to them, unfortunately, if that's what you want, your will be done. But remember, for those that do turn from sin, fling themselves upon Jesus to be their their savior, the risen Lord, the reward is great, remembers that sin no more. And so let's pray together as we close here and open up an opportunity for any man or woman here that would like to, that knows that they need to make that commitment. You can make that commitment now as we pray. Father, we're just so thankful for this beautiful day. We're thankful for just the gift of life. 
and so many good things we're surrounded by. We've got it so much better than we realize sometimes. And Lord, we're thankful for our freedoms. We're thankful for those that are sacrificing as we speak right now, standing in the gap, those that have gone before us and paid the ultimate. We certainly remember your son, Jesus, who paid the ultimate for us. Well, everyone's heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I just ask, if you find yourself here this morning realizing that this does speak to you, it's God and his word, you realize that this speaks of you, that you've been, you are this Naaman. You are this other man, this other woman on the outside in front of others. When in reality, underneath it all, there are all kinds of issues. Who are you really? Who are you when you're in that room all by yourself and all you're left with is your own thoughts? You've been confronted with that person. You know that person. And it's no secret to God. He knows all. He sees even the thoughts and intents of the heart. He steps into that place, but not to point a finger at you. He doesn't want to rub your nose in the shame of it. What he wants is he wants to set you free. He says, look to my son at the cross. The only way for you to even go to hell, you have to literally say, I'm going to step over his dead body. Look at the Savior, what he has done. Do you have the strength? Can God give you the strength through the Holy Spirit right now just to say, I'm done with sin. I want to turn away from this old life. I have tried it and found it wanting. And I want that right relationship with my creator. If that's you, I'd love to lead you in that commitment in a prayer. And this is a prayer where you would be saying, God, I realize I have sinned, but I recognize what Jesus did at that cross and I believe in him. I believe he rose and I ask him to be my savior and be my Lord. If you are prepared to do that wherever you are, I just ask you repeat these words out loud after me from a sincere heart. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on the cross for me and rose again. I turn from my sin now and I ask you to be my savior. And be my Lord. Thank you for loving me. And dying for me. Now help me to follow you. From this moment forward. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. That's worth celebrating over right there. And I want to encourage you. If you meant those words. You know if you did. God knows if you did. Then you have his promises. Remembers that sin no more. Naaman left one thing behind in that water in Israel. He did not go back home with. He left the leprosy behind. Whatever you came in here. This, through those double doors with. You're leaving it behind. Paid for in full at the cross. And so now what? Well here's something for all of us Christians. Once you know God. The purpose of life then. With the life we have left. Is to make him known. One of my favorite quotes by Lewis, he says, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is, but Christianity is the story about how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. That campaign of sabotage is overthrowing the plans of the enemy of our soul, putting a dent in that kingdom of darkness, and, exp and expanding the gospel with a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody, the gospel message. Amen? Hey, real quick, I want to make mention of what the frog means on the shirt because there's some questions. So when the SEAL teams were known as frog men, someone asked if it was something from Hot Topic. Nope. 
So this frog that looks a little eerie, right? Skeleton, bone frog. We're frogmen, but we wear it to honor and remember the fallen frogmen. So it's a memorial to them. And on the back of the shirt, it says, greater love has no one than this, one that lays down his life for his friends. Familiar words? It's John 15, 13. Those are Jesus' words, but there's no scripture reference. Why? Because if there was, no one would ask you about the shirt. I'm telling you, they go, nope, almost walked into that one. It's a God shirt. They don't see that. So I'm telling you, you will get asked about the shirt. And it's a great opportunity for you to share that, look, this represents seals that shed their blood for your earthly freedom. And then they go, I like those words on the back, too. That sounds familiar. Who was that? Like Socrates or something? Uh, and that's where you get to share with them. Nope, not Socrates. That was the Savior. And so think about this. Just as these guys shed their blood for your earthly freedom, the Savior who said those words shed his blood for your eternal freedom. And the response is almost always the same. It's like, wow. I never thought about it that way before. And so it actually really opens people's eyes up too, uh, just to the power of the gospel and the cross. And then seeing that we are a little short on time, do you guys want to know how that ambush played out? All right, you got to get the book. We're out of time. It's in the back. Happy to sign it for you. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for having me out this morning. All right, thank you guys for being here. Be here next week. There's some t-shirts and books for sale out in the lobby. Chad will be out there. Other than that, have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.